Just another typical day at Westminster Presbyterian Church. <laughs> it's like this every Sunday. Let us thank the Jazzland Wonder Band for that terrific prelude. Let me remind those seated on the stairs that we can't have you seated there. If you would please stand and we'll hopefully get away with having you stand in the back of the, of the room. There are other places to hear or see throughout the building and you're invited to wander and listen and uh, find a place. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and I'm the moderator of the Town Hall Forum. It's my pleasure to welcome back for an unprecedented third time to the Town Hall Forum, our most popular speaker ever, Mr. David Brooks. <laughs> Having said that, I'll say to you what I said to him, it's really not about him. <laughs> and he shouldn't take this crowd personally. <laughs> Minnesotans just want to talk about value and character and things that matter. I want, to, I want to welcome all of you here, those in this sanctuary and the hundreds throughout the building and other places. Those who are watching via the live stream at home, and this will be archived, so you can watch it again and again and again through the website. We know you're out, we know you're out there. We're glad you're here for this very special forum. For over 34 year, years, the Town Hall Forum has offered its programs as a service to the community. All of our events are free and open to the public. This long tradition has been made possible by our many, there are 700 some faithful donors. Their names are listed in the program. Many of you are in the audience today. Thank you for your support. To make it easy for you to become a supporter of the forum, we have included a donor envelope inside your program. You can mail that donation to us or drop it in one of the baskets as you exit the sanctuary. This is a community program supported by the community, made possible by the community. So thank you for your support. You'll also find a mailing list sign-up card inside your program. Take a minute, fill that out, drop the card in the same baskets. We'll keep you up to date on what's happening with the West Westminster Town Hall Forum with seasonal brochures and email updates. We're grateful today to Hennepin County Library for co-sponsoring this forum with funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Hennepin County Library is committed to nourishing minds, transforming lives, and building community. To learn more about their lifelong learning opportunities for people of all ages, pick up a brochure at the information table in the Heller Commons or visit their website at hclib.org. You're also invited to offer feedback on today's program by filling out a comment card. They've got a vintage card catalog drawer at the information table and they'd love you to fill it out. This were Hennepin County Library staff. Thank you for being here and thank you for what you do in Hennepin County Library. I want to extend a special welcome to the students in our audience, in particular Kevin Clark's students from the Perpich Center for the Arts. You're up here someplace. There you are. Welcome to Westminster. These young people attend almost every forum and I tell each speaker and I've told Mr. Brooks that the best questions come from that gallery right up there, so get your pencils ready. And we're glad to welcome Mounds Park Academy over here. This is your first visit to the Town Hall Forum. Welcome. In your program, you'll find a card to record a question for our speaker. The ushers will collect those cards at the end of his opening presentation. We will present as many as possible as time allows. The Town Hall Forum is pleased to partner today again with the news and information stations of Minnesota Public Radio. Some 60,000 listeners hear the forum on the radio on NPR. Today's forum is being recorded for broadcast and will be aired tomorrow twice at noon, tomorrow at noon and then at 9 p.m. 91.1 FM in the Twin Cities. In just a moment, I'll receive the signal that NPR is ready to begin recording, and at that time, I will introduce our speaker to you and to the radio audience. Mr. Brooks will speak for about 30 minutes at the conclusion of his presentation. I will reintroduce the forum to the radio audience 
The ushers will collect your questions and bring those forward. If you need to leave early, that's a good time, but I suspect it'll be just getting going at that point. And now before the forum begins, please take a moment to silence your cell phones or anything else that might make a little noise during this radio recording. It occurs to me we should ask the choir for a number while we're waiting here. <laughs> Following the forum, we invite you, as always, to Breads and Spreads in the other end of the building, the Miser Room in the Commons, located on this floor. Just keep going that direction. Mr. Brooks will be signing books for a little while. He has to leave to catch a plane, but in the Heller Commons at the far end of the building to purchase books out this door on your left in the Cloister Hall. Booksellers from Common Good Books are available to help you there. This is the last Town Hall Forum of the spring season. We invite you to join us again in the fall. Our lineup of speakers will be announced in August. Watch for our mailings or visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for information. And finally, at the conclusion of the program, I encourage you to look around you, make sure you don't leave anything in the pews with you, unless if it's of a financial nature. Welcome to do that. <laughs> But take all of your personal items and phones, etc., umbrellas, and thank you for being here. In a moment, we will begin. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 34 years, we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. David Brooks is one of the nation's leading writers and commentators. He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and appears regularly on PBS NewsHour and Meet the Press. He was born in Toronto, grew up in New York City, graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in history. He's been a contributing editor at Newsweek and The Atlantic and a senior editor at The Weekly Standard. He's the best-selling author of The Social Animal, The Hidden Sources of Love, Character, and Achievement, and two previous books which he describes as comic sociology, <laughs> Bobo's in Paradise and On Paradise Drive. His newest book, and the reason he's here today to talk about this, is The Road to Character, a challenging book looking at values, virtues, and choices that form who we are. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, David Brooks. get an amen. <laughs> okay, already I'm too Baptist for you guys. Uh, no, it's a, uh, a pleasure to be here. This is my favorite venue uh, in the country to come to. And it's, uh, and since I have been here, it's my third time, I know I should be brief. Uh, you guys didn't actually come here to hear me speak, you came here to hear yourself speak. Uh, and so I'll try to get out of the way of that. Um, no, it's a long, circuitous route that took me here. As uh, just heard, I, I'm not a Midwesterner. I grew up in New York, uh, and I grew up in a, a very progressive area, uh, Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan. Uh, when my parents, when I was five, my parents took me to a, a B-in in 1965, uh, where hippies would go just to be. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things they did was they took a garbage can, set it on fire, threw their wallets into it to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five, I saw a five dollar bill on fire in the garbage can, so I reached my hand into the fire, grabbed the money, and ran away. <laughs> that was my first step over to the right. Uh, so, it took, a, it took a little while to take. I still live in the Northeast, New York, and Washington, and New Haven. Uh, so it's still a progressive area with people in my area drive Saabs and Audis and Volvos. It's, socially acceptable to have a luxury car in these areas so long as it comes from a country hostile to U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> um, we shop at progressive grocery stores, I'm sure in the Twin Cities, fine tradition of that, of Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, where all the 
cashiers look like they're on loan from Amnesty International. <laughs> could not pretzels and potato chips, that'd be too vulgar. So the seaweed-based snacks, like veggie booty with kale, that's for kids who come home and say, Mom, Mom, I want a snack that'll help prevent colon rectal cancer. <laughs> so, uh, got that area. Um, and so, but I've moved in some ways over to the center right, I guess, of Minnesota conservative, maybe. Uh, I, I used to, uh, I, I got to know Dave Durenberger, uh, I got to know him several years ago, we made, maintained a friendship. Um, and he gave me an outstanding piece of advice when I was about 23, he was actually at my wedding, uh, and he said, become a moderate Republican, there's a big future in that. So that was, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's all worked out, so now I'm going to conservative columnist the New York Times, a, a job I, at the, on the op-ed page, a job I likened to being chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, <laughs> not always a lot of company. Uh, and so that's a sort of a windy road, and it's actually a windy road that takes me up to this beautiful church. Uh, I went to a church in Lower Manhattan, a church school uh, called Grace Church, if anybody knows the Strand Bookstore downtown, it's right next door, beautiful, beautiful place. I was part of the uh, all-Jewish boys davening choir at Grace. Uh, we were about 50% Jewish. Uh, to square it with our religion, we sang the hymns, but we wouldn't sing the word Jesus. Uh, so the volume would drop down to nothing, and then we'd come back up. Uh, and so that's a twisty thing. Uh, the one thing that's been constant in my life is writing. At age seven, I knew I wanted to be a, become a writer. I, 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 took a, um, I read a book called Paddington the Bear. Uh, and said, I want to do that. And so I've pretty much been doing that every day ever since I was seven. Remember in high school, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me, she wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> other people have different values, so. So these are the twists and turns that we all have in our lives. Uh, and some of them are unexpected and amusing. Some of them are just uplifting. And so I had an experience about 10 years ago now. I do a show on, on PBS called The News Hour. Uh, and I was driving home from that show in the summertime, so it was still light. And it was about 7.20 at night, and I pulled into my home, then Bethesda, Maryland. And I pulled in, and the driveway hooked around the side of the house, and you could see in the backyard. And my kids, who were at that point 12, 9, and 4, had one of these big balls you get in the supermarket. And they were kicking it up in the air and it was curving and landing on the other side of the yard and they would run across and they'd pile on top to see who could be the first one to the ball. And they're laughing and frolicking and jumping all over each other. And the, it was a beautiful summer evening. The sun was just coming through the, the trees. The grass looked perfectly green. And so I just pulled into the driveway and was confronted with this perfect scene. Uh, and I just sat there in the car staring at the windshield at it. And it was one of those unexpected moments that parents have had when life and time are suspended, when reality spills outside its boundaries, and you just get a sense of feeling overwhelmed with gratitude for a beauty you haven't earned. And when you have a moment like that, you first realize it pr provides you with a higher joy than anything you can get in the workplace. Second, it sort of enlarges your heart, it fills you up and makes the heart a little larger. The third thing is it creates a, really a moment of grace, creates a strange stirring to be worthy of that undeserved beauty. And so moments like that, you just want to be a little better to be worthy of such experiences. And it happens sometimes in moments like that, in moments of transcendence, if you want to put it that way. Sometimes it happens when you meet somebody with an inner light. Some people, I'm sure we've all met them, they just radiate an inner light. This last summer, I happened to be seated next to the Dalai Lama at a luncheon in Washington, and he's a guy who has that light. <laughs> he, um, he laughs at unexpected moments, and for no apparent reason, and so he'll just start laughing. And you're sitting next to him, you want to be polite, so you laugh along with him. And, um, and so he laughs, and you laugh, um, and you try to insert little comments to justify the laughter. And so he had a little canvas Dalai Lama bag that he had, and so I said, you got any candy in there? Uh, and so he starts pulling out the stuff in the bag. Uh, and uh, he basically, all the stuff in the bag, it's, it's what you get on the first class cabin of international flights. So he's got like the eye shades, the earplugs, the razor, toothbrush. 
but a Toblerone bar. He also had that too, so he did have candy. Um, but you, you, they uplift you with such people. And of course, he's globally famous, um, but we all meet regular people who have that inner light. I was in Maryland in a town up north of Washington about eight, nine months ago, and I ran into a group of ladies who teach immigrants English and then how to read. There are about 30 ladies, age 50 to 80, I'd say, and you walk in the room and immediately they're just radiating kindness and gentleness and patience. And they didn't know me from Adam, but when you talk to them, they make you feel important and valued. Uh, their laughter is musical and it comes quickly. They're just grateful for life. They're not thinking about what wonderful work they do. They're not thinking about themselves at all. And so when I, at least in my circumstance, when I come across such people and when I came across them, I'm thinking, you know, I've achieved way more in career terms than I ever imagined. But when you see that inner light, you think, well, I haven't achieved that. You only get one life. I'd like to achieve that. Become a little better. And so the book is really about that, how that happens. And the, it opens with a, a concept, a distinction that seemed to make sense to me about two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the stuff we bring to the job, what makes you a good teacher, a good accountant, a good journalist. And the eulogy virtues are the things they say about you after you're dead. Whether you're honest, courageous, honorable, capable of great love. And we all know the eulogy virtues are more important, but we happen to have a culture that values the resume virtues and an educational system that does too. I saw a Harvard University study where they asked junior high school kids what do your parents care more about, that you get good grades or that you're kind? And 80% of the kids said, my parents care more about me getting good grades. And I think a lot of us parents, we probably do nag about the grades a little more than the kindness. And so that's a shift in, that's the way the culture is sort of directed these days. And a book that helped me think about this was a book called Lonely Man of Faith, which was written by Joseph Soloveitchik in, in 1965. And he says, each of us has two sides of our nature, which he called Adam one and Adam two. Adam one is the resume side, the career-oriented side. Adam one wants to build, create, produce, win victories. It's a wonderful side of our nature. But Adam two is the internal moral side. Adam two wants to embody certain moral qualities, wants to have a strong inner character, solid sense of right and wrong, not only to do good for the world, but to be good inside. Adam one wants to go out and conquer the world. Adam two wants to obey a calling and, hear, and, and serve the world. Adam one asks how things work. Adam two asks why things exist and what ultimately we're here for. Adam one wants to venture forth. Adam two wants to return home to the warmth of a family meal, to friends having drinks around a bar. And Soloveitchik says these two sides of our nature are intention. Sometimes they go together, having a good career and having a good character the same. But sometimes there's tension. I have a friend who asks people in job interviews, every interviewee says, name a time you told the truth and it hurt you. He wants to know they're willing to put Adam 2 above Adam 1 sometimes. And I'd say the conflict sometimes comes about because the two Adams operate by a different logic. The external Adam 1 operates by economic logic, the logic of the marketplace, which is straightforward. Input leads to output, effort leads to reward, practice makes perfect. Adam two, the internal Adam lives by a moral logic, which is paradoxical and inverse. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success can lead to the greatest failure, which is arrogance and pride. Failure can lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. And so we, as I say, lives in a culture that nurtures Adam one. We live in a very competitive culture. It just takes a lot of time to succeed and have a good career. We live in a culture of social media where it's, you're trying to advertise yourself all the time. It's hard to hear the soft, still, still voice that comes from within. We live in a culture where for a few generations we've told each other how wonderful we are which does not encourage moral self-interrogation. You look at the commencement cliches, follow your passion, be true to yourself, trust yourself, love yourself. We told a couple generations how great they are and they believe this. <laughs> and so 
1950, a polling organization asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? And in 1950, 12% said yes. They asked the same question in uh, 2005, and it wasn't 12%, it was 80% who said yes. Uh, they have a thing called, psychologists have a thing called the narcissism test, where they say, I'm gonna read you a bunch of statements, does it apply to you? And their statements like, I find it easy to manipulate people because I'm so remarkable. <laughs> or somebody should write a biography about me. And the media's narcissism score has gone up 30% in the last 20 years. With that has gone an increased desire for fame. They asked a bunch of junior high school girls, would you rather uh, be a celebrity's personal assistant, Justin Bieber's personal assistant, or president of Harvard? And of course, they love celebrity. They'd rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant by three to one. Though to be fair, I asked the president of Harvard and she would rather be Justin Bieber. <laughs> uh, they asked college students, would you rather have a life that leads a lot to, to a lot of fame or to a lot of sex? And by two to one, they preferred the fame. And so I go to college and I say, listen, I'm on TV twice a week. I read a column in a prominent newspaper. I'm kind of famous. Go with the sex, it's better. And so that's the main current of our culture. But if you're only Adam one, you turn into sort of a shrewd animal, crafty and self-preserving, utilitarian. You lack a quality of inner depth. You lose the ability to speak with a sophisticated moral vocabulary about what's happening inside. You live with an unconscious boredom, not really attached to the highest ideals. And I found in my life, you settle for a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You think, well, I'm not obviously hurting anybody. People seem to like me. I must be doing okay. But slowly, there's a gap that opens up between your desired self and your actual self. You're not really deserving the eulogy you wish for and you're not the sort of person who radiates an inner light. And so the book was about how to do that. How do people do that? And it's really a collection of moral biographies of a series of people who at age 20 were not that impressive, but by age 70 were magnificent. What did they do? What were the activities? One of the figures in the book is a woman named Ida Eisenhower. She was born in 1862 in Shenandoah, Virginia. Her mother died when she was five, her father when she was 11. She became an indentured servant for a family that mistreated her. She walked away, walked to Staunton, Virginia, got herself a high school degree, got herself in a caravan in 1880 or so to Kansas and got herself a university degree. An astonishingly brave thing to do. She married a guy named David Eisenhower. She had six sons, one of whom named was Dwight Eisenhower. When Ike was nine, he wanted to go trick-or-treating and Ida would not let him. And he, uh, she, he, uh, through a temper tantrum, he punched the tree in the front yard so bad he rubbed all the skin off his fingers. I had to send him to his room, had him cry for an hour, and recited a verse to him from Proverbs, which is, he who conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. When he wrote his memoir 60 years later, Eisenhower said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him he had a weakness, which was his temper, and that he needed to overcome it. I had taught him two things, one, humility, Humility is not thinking lowly of yourselves, it's accurate self-awareness from a distance, seeing your strength and seeing your weakness. Second, she taught him that the central drama of life is not the external climb to success, it's the internal confrontation against your own sinfulness. And he had this problem through life of temper tantrums. And he fought it. During World War II, we think of him as this garrulous country club guy, but that was something he created through effort. At nights, in fact, he was lying awake, anxious, hungry, insomnia, drinking throat infections, spiking blood pressure. But he knew he could not lead from a position of anger and anxiety. He had to lead from confidence and cheerfulness. So he created a persona that would allow him to lead. Some of the gimmicks he did were, were, were shallow. He, um, he would take the names of people he hated, write them down on pieces of paper, and rip them up and throw them in the garbage can. <laughs> but it helped him overcome himself. The second person I'll mention is a woman named Frances Perkins. She was born in uh, 1880, went to Mount Holyoke College in class of 1902. Holyoke had different rules than most colleges do today. Here are some rules, Holyoke class of 02. Freshmen should keep a respectful silence in the presence of sophomores. 
freshman meeting a sophomore on campus should bow respectfully. They were teaching deference. They were also teaching toughness. Her weakest subject was chemistry, so they forced her to major in chemistry. They said, if you can tackle your weakest subject, you can tackle what life throws at you. They also took the young women and instilled in them heroic moral ambition. The phrase was, go where no one wants to go, do what no one wants to do. And they sent them out as missionaries to Tibet, to Pakistan, to China, to Africa. Somebody did a survey of all the, the female missionaries abroad in like 1920, and 25% of them were Holyoke grads. Insane ambition. Perkins went to Chicago, worked at Hull House with Jane Addams, and then sort of wandered around looking for her mission, her call. Sort of scattered, genteel. But in 1913, she's having tea in Lower Manhattan, and she hears a commotion, so she rushes outside, and she looks across Washington Square, and she sees a fire. And she stumbled across one of the most famous fires in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. She sees what she thinks are bundles of clothing being thrown out of the 10th floor window, but it's not clothing, it's human beings deciding they'd rather hurl themselves to their deaths than burn to death. And she sees 53 people go over, and she sees a young man helping the seamstresses over the windowsill and dropping them into space. A second, a third, or a fourth, his girlfriend who he kisses, and then he himself goes. And that moment was her moment, what you might call a call within a call. She'd already had a sense that she wanted to become an activist, do good for society. But that moment quieted itself, stripped away the gentility, all the other things she cared about. She would work with anybody, she would compromise with anything, anything to become a ruthless instrument in the cause of worker safety. And she really spent the next 50 or 60 years of her life on that avenue. And she went up to Albany, became a lobbyist for worker safety legislation. But she gets up there and the state legislators, who are not always the most enlightened human beings on the face of the earth, um, they, they, say to her, they say to her, they won't take her seriously. And so she uh, keeps a folder at home called Notes on the Male Mind. And she says, they won't take me seriously as a young woman, but they all want to be loved by their mothers. So she dresses like their mothers. She dresses like an 80-year-old woman, frumpy dress, old-fashioned hairstyle, tri-corner hat, gets the nickname Mama Perkins, and then passes amazing legislation, goes to work for Governor Al Smith, Franklin Roosevelt, and serves as Secretary of Labor for his entire term. And really is one of the creators of the New Deal, including especially Social Security. And so from her, we learned vocation. We tell college students, find your passion. Because not only do we saddle them with a bunch of debt, we give them career derailing advice to make sure they never pay it off. 80% <laughs> of college graduates do not have a passion. We tell them, look within yourself. But that's not what Perkins did. She didn't look within herself. She didn't say, what do I want from life? She asked, what is life asking of me? What are the circumstances demand of me, what problem is out there in my circumstance that needs my attention? And for her, it was worker safety. So we tell people to look within, but she was looking without. And that's how vocations happen. The fourth person I'll mention is George Eliot, the great novelist. She was born at the start of the Victorian era to a woman who was ill, her mother, and who could not provide her with love and attention and who died when Eliot was young. So she grew up with this voracious hunger for love. And she uh, would fall in love with everybody she'd meet. Every guy during her 20s, tall, short, old, young, married, unmarried. She'd fall in love with a guy. She'd entrance him with her conversation. His wife would kick her out of the house. That was the general rule. Then in, at age 32, she fell in love with the philosopher Herbert Spencer. And she, she wrote him a letter that was at once pathetic, but also profound. The pathetic part is the beginning where she's begging him to marry her. It's like, please, please marry me. You won't even notice me around the house. I won't cause any trouble. If you don't marry me, I'll die. But at the end, she has a flourish. And she writes, I suppose no woman ever before wrote such a letter as this, but I am not ashamed, for I'm conscious in the light of reason and true refinement that I'm worthy of your respect and tenderness, whatever vulgar-minded women might think of me. And so this is what you might call her agency moment. There's a moment that I think happens often in early 30s where people no longer require the external affirmation or criticisms from, from outside. They've developed an internal criteria for when they're doing well and when they're not doing well. 
and she had her agency moment at age 32. It didn't work out with, uh, uh, with uh, Spencer, but she met another guy named George Lewis. Lewis was a writer, but he had been married, and he was estranged from his wife, and that woman was living with another guy and had three kids with that other guy. But, and she fell for Lewis. But he was legally married. It's a Victorian era that there's no divorce, there's no tolerance for that. And she, uh, she has to decide. If she goes and lives with Lewis, she will be labeled an adulteress and written out of polite society. And so the choice is between him and everybody else. She'll lose her family, she'll lose everything. She thinks about it for a week and she decides to go with Lewis. She writes, I have counted the cost of the step that I have taken and am prepared to bear without irritation or bitterness renunciation by all my friends. I am not mistaken in the person to whom I have attached myself. He is worthy of the sacrifice I have incurred, and my only anxiety is that he should be rightly judged. When we think of people with depth, we think of a couple things. We think that they have, we assume that rightly, that they've endured moments of suffering in their lives. Most people of depth have had those moments. They've lost a loved one. They've lost um, a job or a romantic breakup. And what suffering does is it, first thing is it does, it introduces you to yourself. The theologian Paul Tillich said what suffering does is it takes you beneath the everydayness of life and reminds you you're not who you thought you were. It carves into what you thought was the basement of your soul, carves through the floor, revealing a cavity below, revealing a cavity below. So first is self-awareness. The second is empathy. People who have endured great suffering have natural empathy, uh, as Franklin Roosevelt did after polio. The third thing is it does is it leads to transcendence. People that are suffering want to connect their suffering to a meaning, to a narrative that takes them into service. I have friends who lost a child when he was six, and they didn't say, well, we've had a couple years of grief, let's go party so we can get happier again. They created a foundation called Hope for Henry, which would take his suffering and their suffering and lead it to a service outside. So it's down to self-awareness, up to empathy, and then finally to service. And so we would say deep people have endured those moments of suffering, as Eliot did. But we would say to have depth, they've also endured moments of great love, and they've been formed by great love, as Eliot did with this leap for Lewis. The first thing love does is humbles you, it reminds you you're not even controlling your own mind, your own heart. Being in love is like being conquered by an army that you want to be invaded by. <laughs> the second thing, though, love plows open hard ground, exposes soft tenderness, making you vulnerable to greater suffering, but also greater joy. The third thing suffering do uh, love does is it decenters the self. It reminds you your riches are not in yourself, they're in another. The fourth thing it does is it fuses individuals together into a joint into a fusion. Montaigne says that, suffer, that uh, love eliminates the distinction between giving and receiving. When a friend, when you consent to allow a friend to give you a gift, you're doing the greater favor by giving your friend the pleasure of giving a gift to a piece of himself. And so she had that kind of, Eliot had that kind of romantic, passionate, idealistic love that she experienced and, and frankly that Taylor Swift sings about. <laughs> But she also had a second love. And a second love is the kind that comes later in life. After you've been nicked up a little, and maybe after marriage or maybe just later. And it's by people who are not as idealistic about each other, not as idealistic about themselves. They're realistic about their own natures, they're realistic about their partner, and they cultivate a love which is less idealistic, but more enduring and more specific. This kind of love was described by a friend of mine uh, namely Leon Weaseltier in a toast, a wedding toast. This kind of love he wrote is private and it is particular. Its object is the specificity of this man and that woman, the distinctiveness of this spirit and that flesh. This love prefers deep to wide, here to there, the grasp to the reach. When the day is done and the lights are out, there is only this other heart, this other mind, this other face to assist in repelling one's demons or in greeting one's angels. It does not matter who the present is, when one consents to marry, one consents to be truly known, which is an ominous prospect. And so one bets on love to correct for the ordinariness of the impression, 
and to call forth the forgiveness that will be required. Marriages are exposures. We may be heroes to our spouses, but we may not be idols. So this is an enduring love. She stayed with Lewis for the rest of his life, for about 20 years. About a year in, he says to her, you know, you should try your hand at fiction. Maybe you're good at it. <laughs> she goes away for a week, writes a story, comes back, reads it aloud to him, and in the middle, he's weeping. He knows immediately what she has, the talent. And forever after, he dedicates his life to her. He subordinates his own career. He becomes her agent, her editor, her publicist. She's sensitive to criticism. Uh, and so he gets up early in the morning, reads all the papers, cuts out any article that may mention her. <laughs> and so hers is a life formed by love. And so these are just some of the activities that lead to depth, lead to character. And these are people who do not think they were wonderful inside. They thought they were splendidly endowed, but deeply broken. And they confronted themselves through acts of vocation, through acts of intellectual effort, through acts of self-defeat, and through acts of love. They were capable of making awesome commitments. And they didn't do it alone. They didn't find, think moral progress was done in the privacy of your own closet. They did it with others because we all need redemptive assistance from outside. And finally, they just experienced acts, moments of joy. Character building sounds like this hard, stern test. But if you look in all their lives, there's moments of great pleasure. And I'll, I'll close with just one final person who I hope you're all familiar with, um, again, St. Augustine. He was born in 354 in Africa. Uh, he was born to a mom named Monica, who was the helicopter mom to beat all helicopter moms. <laughs> she controlled what he thought, what he said, uh, how he believed, who he could marry, who he couldn't marry. He wanted to go um, escape from her, so he tricked her, got on a boat to Italy. She's on the shore screaming at him. Uh, she gets on the next boat, follows him. <laughs> and they had a life of conflict. But when she's 56, she's with him. And she says, you know, all my life I've wanted to be a certain sort of person, a certain sort of Christian. And now you are that. His conversion has happened. And she basically says, I'm ready to go. My work here is done. And in nine days later, she does die. And in, in the Confessions, he describes their form, final conversation in a garden where their voices lifted into sweetness and to harmony after all those years of conflict. And they talked about the future life, the past life. And he talks about just the sweetness of rising above the bodily into the spiritual. And he has a long sentence. And the long sentence is very hard to read and parse, but it has one word that repeats itself. And that word is the word hushed. He says, the sound of the trees was hushed, the sound of the wind was hushed, the sound of the birds were hushed, the sound of our voices was hushed, and the sound of our hearts were hushed. And you just get the repetition, hushed, hushed, hushed. And you realize that Adam 1's ambitions are never satisfied. There's always something else out there. But Adam 2 has moments when it just is surrenders in gratitude. And that's when the inner joy is released. Uh, and that's what I think we were all born to aim for. Thanks very much. Thank you, David Brooks. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is David Brooks, columnist, political commentator, and author of the book, The Road to Character. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to learn more about the Town Hall Forum at our website, westminsterforum.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. And now, Mr. Brooks, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Perhaps it's no coincidence that you just delivered uh, basically a 30-minute sermon from a pulpit. <laughs> uh, 
your, your language is religious, you've acknowledged this in your writing, you're, it sounds like you were preaching on the Apostle Paul's text, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Talk to us about the religious uh, quality of what's going on within your own life that produces this kind of language. Well, I would just observe uh, generally, uh, I know many people who are faithful who are completely wonderful people. I know many people who are atheists who are completely wonderful people. And unfortunately, I know some faithful and some atheists who are total schmucks. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, uh, as from my own observation, I don't think you have to be faithful to, um, to be wonderful. I do think you have to have a moral vocabulary. I do think you have to have the words to, that are the handholds to understand the drama that's going on inside. And if you don't have that, it's just how to develop characters, just like a miasma, it's vague. And it just as a fact of our civilization that most of the people over the centuries who've written about this were writing in a theological or philosophical tradition. And so I think two things are necessary. One is to rediscover and modernize the moral vocabulary, a lot of words that have fallen out of usage. The big one for me is sin, a word that is now used most in the context of fattening desserts. <laughs> but if you don't know what sin is and your own brokenness, then it's tough to know what to struggle against. Thomas Merton said, souls are like athletes. They need something powerful to rise to the full extent of their powers. And if you can't name what's wrong and if you can't understand that there is something broken in all of us, whether it's vanity, greed, self-centeredness, that you don't know what you're struggling against. And character is built through that struggle against yourself, through that self-confrontation. The second thing I'll say is, we used to have a lot of public theologians, people like Reinhold Niebuhr, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who came out of the values tradition but who were in the public square. Now, unfortunately, we have a lot of political pundits. And our public discussion on cable TV and elsewhere is over-politicized and under-moralized. And so basically, I think I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to move things. Several questions from the audience asking you to go a little bit more personal, if you would, about your own faith journey and the, the rise of this vocabulary in your own yeah. life. So this is a question I dodge. <laughs> uh, I know that, that's why I asked it. <laughs> uh, and I dodge it for two reasons. I have two characters in the book who are big believers in reticence. One was Francis Perkins and one was George Marshall. And I do think there are certain things that are so intricate and intimate that they should be shared with people with whom one has have a long and private and lasting trusting relationship. And that if I were to broadcast it, I would simplify and crudify. And I'm afraid I would um, stifle my own growth by turning into a talking point. And you, 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 you sound like a Presbyterian, as you say. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, politics. How can the values and the character qualities you, you describe be brought into politics in America today? Well, there occasionally uh, there are some people in politics who exemplify the values of humility uh, and honesty. Um, and humility is such a beautiful emotion or a beautiful trait. Arrogance is a voracious hunger in a small space. It's silly, it's jarring. But humility is... Um, just a gracefulness, and there's a beauty to it. And I should say, um, if I think of politicians who have been humble, who I've had a chance to cover, probably the most, the greatest exemplar uh, of that is sitting here in the room, uh, Walter Mondale. Among the people, I, especially who are in this current climate, which is a very hard climate to operate in, what I see is a lot of politicians come in for the right reasons, wanting to serve. Uh, and, but the process requires so much selling themselves as a product. They become, they become believers in their own spin and their own propaganda. And what sometimes gets lost is um, the inner honest voice. They just become public personalities and they lack the inner honest voice that normal people have, that's separate. And while I'm in Minnesota, I should praise a, a senator who I praise in all states, 
and who I think is an exemplar of someone doing a lot of great work for the country while remaining a basically normal human being. And that's Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> Okay, how, how, do you, uh, how did you select the people that you focus on in your book? So I chose a lot of people um, who were, as I say, were messy at 20, wonderful at 70. Uh, I needed to know a lot about their internal lives, so there had to be biographies or journals or diaries so we know what's going on inside. But I, I really started because of uh, an experience I had. A lot of them were from the 1940s. And all great epiphanies happen on NPR. Uh, <laughs> And I was listening to my local NPR show, uh, and I happened to hear an old radio broadcast that was rebroadcast called Command Performance. And it was a variety show that went out to the troops in World War II. And the episode I heard was on VJ Day, 1945, just hours after the Japanese announced their surrender. And Bing Crosby gets out there and he says, we've just learned we've won this war. I guess we don't feel too proud. We just feel humble. We're just glad we got through it. And I was really struck by the tone of modesty. And then Burgess Meredith, the character actor, gets out there and reads a passage for Ernie Pyle. And he says, we didn't win this war because we have, we're, we're God's chosen people. We're better than anybody else. We should just try to stay modest and be worthy of the peace. And I, I just thought that was very elegant and beautiful. And we would not want to go back to the culture of the 1940s. It was racist. It was sexist. The food was boring. <laughs> but that smaller sense of self was something I do think we can recover and modernize. How do you teach character to students whose parents worry about self-esteem and grades and pressure to get into the right schools, the proliferation of, of uh, high grades, A, et cetera? How do you teach character to, in that kind of environment? Yeah. Well, I think as I, what I try to do is hold up exemplars. We learn from other people. Uh, the second thing that teachers can do, and this I learned from an email. A guy sent me an email. Um, uh, about how hard it is to teach in the classroom, teach this sort of stuff. And he wrote me this, as he was a veterinarian from Oregon named Dave Jolly. He wrote, what a wise person teaches is the smallest part of what they give. The totality of their life and the way they go about it and the smallest details is what gets transmitted. Never forget that the message is the person, perfected over lifetimes of effort that was set in motion by yet another wise person, hidden from the recipients in the dim mists of time. And I like that. The, what a wise person teaches is the smallest part of what they give. The message is the person. It's the small little gestures that we remember from our teachers. Not what they taught us, but who they were. And so it's, it's just behaving in that way. It sends out radiating influence for all of us. Do you think one or two years of required community service or some kind of mandatory service to the nation after high school would help individuals in society develop character? Well, I support national service, um, but um, and because mostly because I think it would be wonderful if kids from, uh, you know, Rochester, Minnesota, served with kids from Mobile, Alabama. I just think it would bind the nation together. Um, I, I have a little hesitant, and I, of course, I think community service is wonderful. I teach at Yale, and my kids do amazing community service. I, I always say, you know, what are you doing spring break? And their answer is, you know. I'm, unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers, that sort of thing. Um, they do amazing service. But, but the one thing I, I want to caution against, which has, is important to me, is that sometimes when we ask questions about an internal thing, we answer with an external thing. And so I was at a school and I asked the head of the school, how do you teach character? And she said, well, we have our students do a lot of community service. And that's great. But there has to be a vocabulary for the inner life, not just the external impact. And so, sometimes we use community service as a patch to cover our inarticulateness about the stuff I'm trying to describe. In a recent column, you asked readers to send in accounts of how they have found purpose in their lives. Have you had any responses and any you want to share? Yeah, I, if you go on a webpage called theroadtocharacter.com, we're beginning every day to put out six or seven out there. And some of them are, are very beautiful. There's one that I just read today that leaps to mind. It was an 85-year-old guy. And he talked about how you know, he tries to serve his family, many of whom he actually likes. Uh, <laughs> but then he says, one of the things that gives me purpose, 
these days is my garden. And then he, he describes what plants are thriving and what plants are not. And there's something so simple and material in just tending a garden. And it doesn't seem like a big heroic thing, but it reminds me of some of the writing of E.B. White, just tending a plot of ground and making that sort of an organized nurturing. Uh, and you know, the, the Adam 1 and 2 thing that I have from Soloveitchik comes from Genesis, where there are two accounts of creation. One of man is given dominion over the earth to go out. The other is to tend the garden. And there's something physical, physically beautiful in organizing and rooting your life in a physical activity like a garden or, or husbandry or carpentry. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to politics. Among the field of 2016 presidential candidates, <laughs> and it's a big field, can you say anything about the role of character you see and play among them? Yeah. Okay, well, now psychoanalyze all 26. Uh, I'll just say two things. Um, I, I have yet to form judgments about them. That's what we've campaigned for. We can get little glimpses. I do think character is destiny in politics. Uh, there was a poll that said, they asked people, do you um, think Hillary Clinton's a strong leader? And 76% of independents said yes. And, do they, and then they asked the same independent voters, do you think she's honest and trustworthy? And 60 some odd percent said no. So in other words, they think she's a dishonest, untrustworthy, strong leader. <laughs> and setting aside Hillary Clinton, I don't think that's possible. I think if you're gonna be a strong leader, you have to be good at building relationships and to build relationships, you basically have to be a decent person. You have to have some morality there. I also think if you're not a strong, if you're broken inside, your Watergate will come sooner or later. And so I, I do think character is really important, which we measure in times of adversity during the campaign. And I, I guess I could go through who I'm positively impressed by and who I'm not, but let's let it shake out and, and see how uh, they all reveal themselves to be total scoundrels. <laughs> You, you, you wrote recently about the Bush and Clinton family dynasties and, and wrote in a fairly favorable light about those dynasties. Can you say more about that? Moment of candor. Sometimes you write a column because the idea seems interesting. It might be true. Um, <laughs> and I, I was just observing uh, that we think it's, we feel guilty. People feel terrible that we, you know, we have a country of 333 million and we just have two families that seem to be competing. Um, but I guess I would say um, I'm in a state with a lot of political families, it occurs to me. And there's a reason for that. Um, gifts are handed down, sometimes in illegitimate ways, legacy admissions, but sometimes in totally legitimate ways, where families embreed certain values into the kids, and they go on to, and they've seen public service in an intimate way from a very early age. And so they go on to, and we have political families, that sons of senators and governors running for those offices. And Minnesota's a great example. I can think of several families here. And so this is the way life is. We are not a collection of lone individuals who are making our way in the world. We come into society formed by our relationships, most importantly, our family relationships. So it's not altogether surprising that um, there would be families that would begin to dominate, whether they're Kennedys or Rockefellers um, or Clintons or Bushes. Let's face it, thinking you, you can be president of the United States is a really odd thing to think. Yeah. <laughs> and no offense. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you come from the Bush family, it's a little less odd. Because other people, you know. If you could recommend just one must-read book, besides your own, of course, a book that maybe that changed your life or something that every American should read, what would it be? Well, I'm going to select from the characters I have in the book. And this is a religious figure, but I only do it because I've taught this course at Yale for three years. And um, there are 14 readings from some of the characters I've mentioned, Augustine and others. And the final paper is I ask the students, take any of the 14 readings and apply it to a problem in your own life. And so there are 14 readings, and last term, out of, say, 24 students in the seminar, 19 of them picked the same book. 
And that book was a, a book called The Long Loneliness by Dorothy Day. And so it's a beautiful book. And, but what's interesting about her is she's a woman of intense emotional intensity. She, not only, she read novels, and she not only read them, but she, um, she lived them out. And unfortunately, she um, read a lot of Dostoevsky. Uh, and so <laughs> poverty, drinking. And, and then her life was turned around by the birth of her child and the waves and flood of joy she felt then. That joy, she said, I need to worship somebody. And so she worshiped God, she became a Catholic, she created a social worker, the Catholic worker newspaper, communes, food kitchens, homeless shelters, she lived in them for the next 50 or 60 years. And so they're transfixed by her emotional intensity, they're transfixed by how she's found a vocation, they're transfixed by her um, sometimes self-criticism, which is intense. And then the final thing I'll mention, I mentioned that moment of hushed for Augustine. She had a moment like that, which I've always enjoyed, and it's worth saying in a Christian church. She was asked at the end of her life, uh, do you ever think of writing memoirs? Because she was a beautiful writer and wrote all her life. And she said, you know, I sat down one day and I wrote on the top of a piece of paper uh, a life remembered. And I thought about my life and how I would describe it. And I thought of the major episodes of my life. And I thought of the Lord and his visit to us all those centuries ago. And I was just grateful to have had him on my mind all that time. And and she says, I don't need to write. That's fine. I'm just grateful I had him on my mind. That was what my life was about. And it's a very beautiful sense of rest uh, for all of us. Uh, we have a number of students here at the Town Hall Forum today, as we typically do. What would you say to them in terms of advice as they seek their way into life, their vocation in life? Well, I guess, you know, there's a lot, as I say, a lot of bad advice is given. Follow your passion, all that stuff. Um, I would say a couple things. We live in a culture that emphasizes freedom. Uh, and we live in a climate these days where um, committing is harder. If you look at the number of people who are committed to political parties, that's gone down. If you look at the number of people who are committed to um, religious affiliations, that's gone down. People are just committing left and they're floating through life. It's more fluid. But the thing I've learned in my life is that the Happiness and fulfillment is all based on your ability to commit. Your ability to strongly commit to things outside yourself. And there are four or five big commitments you're gonna to have to make in life. And, you're, and I would say take your time over your 20s and 30s to make them. Your parents will go completely insane. <laughs> but take your time and try things out. And those commitments are to a philosophy of life. You gotta have some basic understanding of what you believe. And don't try to create one on your own. Pick a tradition that already existed. <laughs> Second, to a vocation, to a career path. Not necessarily the same job, but the same thing you're doing. Third, to a marriage. Fourth, to a community. And fifth, to either a faith or some other philosophy. You've got to make those five commitments. And so that's the job of in college and post-college. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the core of life, those five things. Uh, and all the rest is... Um, just YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have time for just one more brief answer. Are, are you hopeful about America today? Yeah, I, I'm completely hopeful. You know, so we, um, we have a little narcissism problem. Um, <laughs> but we have, we're A, in a period of social repair. All the social indicators that went south in the 60s are now headed in the right direction. Crime is down, violence is down, domestic violence is down, pregnancies are down, abortion rates are down. We're just moving in the right direction. And we're still basically the same country that Alexis de Tocqueville came from. And a moralistic, energetic, self-repairing country that somehow figures out how to do stuff. And so all the Jeremiah's about how America's going downhill, they've always been wrong. I don't know if they'll always be wrong, but they're certainly wrong now. Thank you, David Brooks.